Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, first of all, uh, I'd like to apologize to any of our fellow saloners who may have had trouble downloading my last podcast. As you might have guessed, my server crashed. You know, I'd, I'd actually just checked it before I went to bed that night, but by morning it was uh, offline and had to be rebooted. And this sometimes happens, uh, well, simply because of the large number of simultaneous connections being made. At any given moment, there are several hundred people downloading one or more of these podcasts, and sometimes when I post a new program, uh, particularly a long one like my last podcast, the uh, additional load on the server brings it down. But since right now we aren't in a position to get a bigger server, I've decided to follow the advice of, uh, well, several of our fellow saloners over the last uh, months have suggested that I process these talks in mono format rather than stereo. And while this may distort my own voice a little uh, in these sections here because I add background music, uh, it should have no effect on the main talk. And uh, in the process, it uh, hopefully will reduce the file size of these programs enough so that uh, it will make it a little easier for you to download, uh, particularly on a low bandwidth connection. So I'll give this a try for a little while and uh, we'll see how it works. Also, uh, I'm not going to uh, do such long programs anymore if I can help it. And uh, what that means is that uh, I'm going to break the remaining part of the workshop that we've been listening to into two parts and put one out today and uh, hopefully one more tomorrow. But before I get to today's program, there are a couple of important announcements that I think you might be interested in. The first one is about a conference that is uh, going to take place and is called Contact in the Desert. It's going to be held at Joshua Tree, California in August from the 9th to the 11th, and that's uh, this year, 2013. I'll uh, put a link to it in the program notes for this podcast, which you uh, know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and in my next podcast, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But in brief, it's going to be a three-day conference that covers such interesting topics as the possibility of ancient aliens here on Earth, uh, human origins, crop circles, alien abductions, and, of course, UFOs. Uh, Not only, of course, are there going to be a lot of well-known researchers into these uh, topics that will be speaking at the conference, but I already know of several of our fellow saloners who are going to be there. And uh, since the next podcast is going to be a bit shorter than this one, I'll tell you more about it then. However, if you are interested, uh, you may want to make your reservations now because I understand that it looks like it's going to be a very well-attended conference. And uh, actually, the URL for this event is quite easy to remember. It's contactinthedesert.net. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T-I-N-T-H-E-D-E-S-E-R-T dot net. Contactinthedesert.net. All one word. Now, the other announcement that I want to make concerns the upcoming Palenque Norte lectures that will be held at this year's Burning Man Festival. A few weeks ago, I read a list of the confirmed speakers so far, and I'll update that again in another few weeks so that uh, you know some of what to expect in the way of talks from the salon this fall and winter, when I'll be podcasting most of the more than 30 lectures that will be held there. However, uh, there's one small difficulty between here and there, 
And uh, while the theme camp that is hosting the talks will be raising a substantial amount of money in the form of contributions from uh, people who will be camping there to pay for their infrastructure, they uh, aren't going to be able to quite raise enough money to purchase the large circus tent that's going to be needed to house the lectures. And for that, the camp organizers have launched an Indiegogo campaign that... Well, I'm afraid it hasn't started off as well as we'd hoped. So, if you want to be a part of this year's Palenque Norte Lectures, uh, even if you can't make it to Burning Man yourself, a small contribution to the infrastructure would be most welcome. And uh, again, I'll put a link to that campaign in today's program notes, but the URL, if you want to go to it now, is www.indiegogo, that's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O, indiegogo.com slash projects slash and here's a long one it's, it's a whole bunch of words that you can remember returning vision to the human enterprise Palenque Norte but there's a dash between each one of those words a returning dash vision dash to dash the dash human dash enterprise dash Palenque dash Norte <laughs> I think that's the longest URL that I've ever read here in a podcast. Uh, but if you go there, uh, even if you aren't able to make a donation, uh, you'll be able to watch an interesting little video about Planque Norte. But uh, don't delay too long, because I think there's uh, only about two weeks left in the campaign. Now, uh, let's get on with the show and pick up with the next-to-last part of a weekend workshop that Terrence McKenna led in August of 1993. And uh, we'll join the Bard McKenna as he begins to talk about what he calls this psychedelic thing. I think when we finally tee, if we ever tease apart this psychedelic thing, what we'll discover is it's an interspecies communication system. That, that life is a seamless web of signal transduction and that we somehow have become isolated from this process by our historical pathology. And so for us, the voices have grown mute. We can't get the signal. And consequently, you know, it's a, it's a pretty grim row to hoe. There's a curve with the introduction of every drug of great expectation. I mean, once it was Milltown, and then, you know, uh, Valium, and then something else. And usually once as your data sample swells, you begin to see uh, the negative effects of these things. I'm very, I'm sort of not the person to ask this because I'm very, uh, some people have said, blindly prejudiced in favor of plants. But I just think human beings have evolved in the presence of living systems and that that's a very good filter to pass drugs through. The question, do they uh, occur in living systems? I mean, God knows there's enough stress built into modern life. It's like a stress production uh, machine. I'm constantly trying to tell myself that you know we're having a good time now uh, and, and that this is what it's all about. I had, this is, if I may go off on a tear here, um, uh, I followed with interest the crop circle phenomenon in England, and uh, recently a book has been written uh, by an American uh, called Around in Circles, 
and it, it basically it buries the crop circle phenomenon. If your metaphysic was hanging on this, you better head for cover in a hurry. But the most interesting figure to me in the controversy was uh, this uh, British meteorologist Terence Meaton, who at the beginning his position was this is the wind. These things are vor vortices. Uh, caused by heat convection, and they are capable of swirling the wheat into these patterns. He was, you see, a reductionist. He was saying there's nothing unusual going on here, so forth and so on. Well, then, as the phenomenon got rolling, uh, the, the circles became more and more elaborate. And Meaton, always being asked by the media to explain these things, came to insist that uh, once he eventually electrified his vortices and they became plasma vortices, a rare natural phenomenon disputed by some whether it even exists or not. And once he had in place the concept of the plasma vortex, no matter how elaborate the crop circles became, straight lines, triangles, triangles in triangles. <laughs> Meaton could always explain that if you were cognizant of the higher mathematics which ruled the world of plasma physics, this was all perfectly straightforward and in fact predictable from theory. And, and this went on until the BBC made a crop circle and then took him out to it and got him to certify it as genuine and to lecture on the various features which made it impossible for human beings to create such a structure, and then revealed to him uh, that uh, it was, in fact, artificial. Now, if you'll repeat your question, I'll connect <laughs> this up to it. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, so far, we've had this cheerful little scenario where the monkey descends to the bottom of the tree, empty of tummy, and lo and behold, here is this mushroom. And I called it, I think, an extraordinary confluence of events or some weasel term like that. <laughs> uh, what I was skirting around is the issue of was this simply a wonderfully fortuitous confluence of events or was this a thickening of the plot? Was this a bringing together of two elements that had been designed to meet each other in the councils of the Galactarians eons before uh, somewhere else? Uh, I don't know. It does appear to be a viral catalyst for technological civilization. You know, you give it to a monkey and 15,000 years later they're landing instruments on their nearest planetary neighbor. I, I had, uh, I had uh, a professor in college who said what he th thought it was all about was that someday flying saucers would visit the earth and they would take all the fissionable material away. And they would just then explain that human history was a project to concentrate fissionable material for their purposes. And now, thank you very much, you know, and you people can go back to, you know, picking fleas and beating each other's brains out as far as we're concerned. Uh, 
you know, we do that. We do that. There's a technique for extracting gold out of very low-grade gold ore, where what you do is you crush the gold into a watery slurry, and then you infect this gold, muddy, gold-laden water with a kind of bacterium that concentrates gold in its body tissues. And then you stir this up and cook it up, and then you just skim off the bacteria and harvest the gold out of their body tissues. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I actually lost the thread of that. My point was that if you're committed enough to a hypothesis, no matter how the data can twist and turn, you can fit it uh, to the hypothesis. Uh, I, I, I find it possible to entertain the idea that uh, the mushroom actually is some kind of extraterrestrial thing. I mean, we, after all, we don't really know what the nature of the cosmic situation is. We don't know whether life arises wherever conditions are okay. We don't know how chaotic the universe is. Like, do most planets get 10, 100 million year shots at stability where they can get higher animals together before some comet or geomagnetic reversal or something flips it over? I, I do think that if, uh, you know, if you wanted, to, if you were an extraterrestrial and you had an ethos of non-invasiveness, and you wanted to have a very low-key interaction with an intelligent species, the way to do it would be to come at it through an intoxication. You know, you don't appear with trillion-ton beryllium ships over major cities. You know, we have been studying you for 50,000 years. I don't think it's done like that. I think it's more like you, you find a... a, a a dimension in the cultural world of the species you're trying to study where weirdness is sanctioned. And then you set up your lemonade stand uh, in that world. In this case, the world of psychedelic intoxication. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's all about their purpose. You know, like everybody assumes their purpose is to communicate with this. It seems to me if their purpose is to communicate with us, they could have just communicated with us. Their purpose appears to be to influence or to observe. My purpose is to tell all secrets. I'm at war with the keepers of the secrets. It's one way of looking at it. I, I don't think they've done it to another species. Uh, it seems that you know what they are is they're mean traders on one level. And they've, come, they've blown in here and they have this intentionality to communicate. The, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the content of the DMT experience is where this contact becomes much more explicit, more puzzling, more alien, and more strange. What's happening on, with psilocybin usually is a voice and a voice you can handle. Because if it doesn't speak in English, you can't understand it. So it must operate within a certain narrow band of rational apprehendability, or you lose it and it makes no sense. On the other hand, a visual input 
can go off the beam of rational apprehendability and you're still looking at it, you know, as it loses coherency and tentacles sprout and chelicery snap and hexagonal eyeballs roll by and then it gets its fix back on. So, oh, excuse me for a moment, I <coughs> nearly lost my uh, face, as it were. <coughs> so, and... In the, the, the content of the DMT thing is really puzzling. I mean, one of the motivations for my career is to get other people to check it out because here is con truly confounding data that you don't have to make an expedition to the heart of the Amazon or battle your way through hours of waves of nausea in dark spaces chanting your mantra obsessively. I mean, when you smoke DMT... 30 seconds later, you're in the presence of the unspeakable and the show is going full blast. I mean, these, these, uh, these tyke-like, self-transforming, machine-elf things that rush forward to exhibit their rhetorical skills in a three-dimensional language that you look at rather than hear. And they offer you you know, the technological artifactory of another dimension. Fabergé eggs and Ming Dynasty uh, ories and uh, just the most amazing fabricated objects which they make out of language. They demonstrate language in another dimension. That's why I really think that part of what we're moving toward is technological only in the most fundamental sense. It's going to arise out of the body. The project of language in human beings is only partially completed. It doesn't have to stop at little mouth noises. There's a way to pass over into something more grandiose, more enclosing, more boundary dissolving, more emotionally intense. It's a, well, what I always tell to people who are really dedicates and it's deep advice is, you know, go to the Amazon. Uh, and the mere act of placing yourself in the Amazon is pretty psychedelic in and of itself. And then, you know, as you make your way through these colorful personalities that are the Peruvian people and their medical practitioners, all kinds of adventures happen. And then eventually, if you're lucky, you actually get to the good brew and... Uh, it will sweep you, just knock your pins right out from under you, sweep you screaming into the cataracts of perturbability. <laughs> well, it, I, it, it may be, uh, it may be. I mean, you have to take a number if you want to accuse me. You just don't, uh, you just don't elbow your way to the front of the line like that. Uh, uh, I don't have any problem with the idea that dance is the primary uh, is a primary language. It, what it's all it, uh, it, cognitive activity is the term that I prefer. Clearly, we had an animal existence of a very limited number of concerns. You know, not to be killed, to feed our children, to get sufficient sex, and like that. And then we broke through to something else and uh, self-expression. And I think people danced for each other. 
did glossolalia for each other, body painted, made faces, uh, did all of these things, and for a long, long time before meaning was invented. And the reason uh, language got a special uh, um, position in all this is that it's easier to make small mouth noises than it is to dance. It's easier to make small mouth noises than it is to make faces or gestures. So it was an energy economy thing. But self-expression comes out of the body. Uh, and, and dance, you're probably right, very well was primary. I think where my fetish lies, if there's a genuine accusation in all of this, uh, but I, it's a, as like any fetishist, I will defend it, <laughs> is, uh, is for the visual. Uh, people say, you know, why do you always insist that you have to have hallucinations? Why are you so bent about the visual connection? Well, the answer is a voice in the head or a funny bunch of thoughts, like for me that's what LSD was, it was for very odd kinds of thinking, but it, uh, all of these things could be generated out of my own psyche. But I am pretty familiar with the inventory of my psyche as far as its image bank is concerned, and because it's drawn like yours is from the culture, you know. It only stretches so far from Hieronymus Bosch to Andy Warhol and all the themes in between. Well, so then when you turn on psilocybin and you get these bursts of the, I've never seen anything like that before, <laughs> then that convinces me uh, that this is the real McCoy. So, so the, fe the fetish for the visual is, uh, is pretty real, I think. The object fetishism, uh, these things aren't exactly objects. You have to understand that it's, we download through many levels of compression in order to sit in this room and talk about such outlandish things. I mean, I describe them as objects like Fabergé eggs made of agate, chalcedony, and ivory. But I could just as easily have described them as uh, puns. Uh, interlocking in a dance of casuistry, reflexive meaning, and uh, uh, philological entendre of great satisfying depth. Huh? Something <laughs> like that, you see. I mean, because they're both and. I mean, these things are exist in another dimension. And uh, if I... I don't do the best job. I mean, if I, if I could make it weirder for you, I would. People say, you know, you evoke images very well. To, sometimes that's the defeat of rhetoric, because what we're really talking about is, in fact, so hard to invoke. We're really pushing the envelope of language. Uh, it really frustrates me when people have psychedelic experiences and don't talk about them. Because to me, that's what they're for. They're to fertilize the enterprise of communication. It's to be talked about. And, uh, and if it's not talked about, it's sort of like seeds which fall on sterile ground. Yeah.
Well, I've heard, I've heard it. This is also said about the Maya. Uh, uh, it was said even about the dinosaurs, uh, which doesn't, it doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, I, don't know if it, I don't know if I believe it ever has happened. Obviously, I believe in principle it can happen. I believe, you know, it has always seemed to me that uh, this used to be the motivation for my LSD taking. It seemed to me that you could sit down in a room with someone and begin to, ha this is maybe what I'm trying to do with you, but we never get there. <laughs> sit down in a room with someone and begin to have a conversation that would take it apart. Take it apart and leave no, nothing there. You know, at the end, no guru, no method, no teacher, and no nothing else either. Uh, uh, I think that the world is held together by a misunderstanding and that if you could overcome that misunderstanding it would just uh, fold up and deconstruct and uh, that in a sense this is what the concept of enlightenment is. I think it's a, it's a f series of insights or thoughts or revelations, one which projects forward into another, which leads you to just say, oh, it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not this, and then, yeah. Well, I guess the, the mundane plane is the misunderstanding. Uh, it's, and I guess the, then if we analyze the mundane plane, we see what constitutes the misunderstanding a belief in three-dimensional space and time, a belief in the finite life of the organism, uh, and then the rupture of the mundane plane leads to this kind of platonic superspace where there seems then to rest uh, incontrovertible truths. They are not truths approached by logic and argument, they are self-evidently true. So they're either true for you or, or they're not true. And uh, shamanism then sort of views all this very uh, optimistically, takes the existence of this transmundane world as a higher world, a world in which healing can be done and uh, the, the community can be made to cohere. And, uh, and the shaman is, a, is essentially a technician wiring and repairing and moving behind the board of culture, keeping all these lines open and, uh, and together. Is that where your interest lies? Well, yes, I see. So uh, apparently... It seems to me that it, it looks like mind is something that if we were to make an analogy, it's somewhat like sulfur, in that sulfur has this weird quality of having two melting points. You, you, know, you have solid yellow sulfur and you heat it and it melts, but then you keep heating it and it turns back into a solid. And you continue heating it and it melts again. 
This is a curious property of sulfur, but not magical. Uh, the human mind seems to me to be like that. It's something that in the mundane plane, it has collapsed down into a tool for threat detection and social account keeping, basically. But when you go alone or with your nearest and dearest to wilderness or places where you feel secure and you perturb the chemical foundations of consciousness, then this is the equivalent of heating the sulfur. And lo and behold, a new geometry is cast out of the fluid mercury of the, of the psychedelicized mind. And uh, I think I said this morning, I really favor a geometric model. I think that the shaman's power comes from the fact that the shamans really are seeing things from a higher dimensional perspective, that that's not a metaphor or an analogy, that that's the voice of mathematics speaking. And because I, as I analyze, um, you know, the history of biology and higher animals and culture and so forth, what I see as a continuous theme from the very beginning is the conquest of dimensionality. Uh, life conquers dimensions. Life begins as a fixed slime in one place with no eyes, no ears, no nothing, and it evolves tactile awareness. Then it slowly becomes through the sequestering of pigment-sensitive cells onto its surface. It acquires the notion of a gradient of light and darkness. And then through the formation of lenses, it's able to stabilize an impression of the exterior world. It evolves progressively more advanced forms of locomotion. Eventually it evolves memory and complex cognitive interior maps for anticipating the future. This is a description of a strategy for the conquest of dimensionality. And I think really the shamans are the people among us who represent the next evolutionary level. They are people who, are, who have learned to do what we can't do, to come and go from hyperspace, whatever it is, an informational superspace that exists inside the psychology of the individual and the group that we can't even see because we're materialists fixated on the topological surfaces of the three-dimensional manifold, which is only one level in the onion of reality. These shamans have moved over to another level, but I think they are the paradigm for a new um, authentic, uh, authentication of the human, of the human experience. And it's all about experience. This is what we clearly have wandered too far from. We are too in our heads. The consequences of a phonetic alphabet, monotheism, modern science, Greek aesthetics, yada, 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 is just to move us too far from experience. And so then this compensating thing is coming back in and the shaman is the paradigmatic figure. And when you analyze what shamanism is, the psychedelic experience is revealed to be the sine qua non of uh, this lifestyle. I fiddled with screenplays. Uh, 
my objection to most visions of extraterrestrials is people don't understand extraterrestrials are not mundane you know they don't want our beautiful women uh, and, and they don't have a fascination with our gross industrial output. Uh, the real trick with an extraterrestrial is to know when you're in the presence of one because it is going to be so strange and of such a different order of magnitude in many parameters that uh, the trick is recognition, I think. I mean, eventually we may come to see that many life forms... Are, that we are not all to be traced back to one blob of germplasm, that, are, you know, the warm pond theory. I think the warm pond theory is in for serious revision. I think interesting genes have blown in here every once in a while over, over the millennia as the earth has ground forward. And, of course, those genes get embedded in living systems. Uh, the mitochondria which power the animal cell were originally free-swimming bacteria that got into a symbiotic relationship with some kind of membrane-like matrix and before they knew it they had been incorporated as subcellular organelles of a larger system mind that this doesn't happen to you <laughs> <coughs> yeah well, isn't it? It's the role of the artist. It's to stretch the envelope. It's to bring the news from the edge. I mean, the musician, the shaman, the smith, the physician, these were all originally combined, you know, because the mystery of creation and the mystery of the human body, this was all spun together. Uh, that's why when people say, you know, what is the proper response to the culture crisis, I think... The response is to shamanize, and that means, you know, to help with the healing, to explore the invisible world, uh, and to make art, to, to try to make art, to try and anticipate the revelatory process by which the transcendental other is drawing the historical matrix into an ever clearer reflection of its identity, whatever it is. I mean, it's going to come through us somehow. We invoke it. It's, we're boring toward it through the mountain of human history. It's boring toward us. We can anticipate it. It senses us. This is a, 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 a real uh, relationship here, but it's a relationship where illusion must be shed and shed and shed about what the other is. Well, it's not clear, as I say. It's not clear what the intent is. Uh, after all, what we now take to be the great canon of Western art were basically a, a fairly self-indulgent bunch of courtly types spiraling around... Uh, producing public relations flackery for royal families. I mean, there are different ways of, of, of looking at the artistic enterprise in each time and place. Well, I maintain history as a self-limiting process and that we're, we, you can see the end from here. You know, you have to have a pretty complicated rap to deny 
that we are in some kind of unusual situation here, folks. Well, that suggests to me that this is awfully close to the surface of ordinary metabolism, considering what a shocking shift of consciousness it is. I mean, millions of people go to the grave without ever having a DMT trip unless they have it at the brink of the grave. That we don't know about. But the idea that that in a dream such a shockingly extreme physiological response could be elicited means, I'll bet if we could do human work with DMT unfettered in, a, in an environment of biofeedback and that sort of thing, that you could teach people to have this experience. Well, that may be what it's all about. It is, you know, a, a non-invasive, non-drug technique for just opening up a portion of your brain that somehow cultural abuse has closed off to us and that if we could access it, that would be the dream time and that would be uh, the entry into the domain outside of history. It, yeah, the Seth material. Well, I used to say if you can do this without drugs, you're probably mentally ill. Uh, I tend to take a hard view of it. I, I don't exactly understand the, 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 the uh, razzmatazz that surrounds it. I mean, I've talked with many entities. I've never felt the need to establish the spelling of their English name or, you know, uh, this wish to name the entity puzzles me. Uh, or whatever, or whatever. The ch but I didn't then write a book and go on opera and say that I was channeling Dorothy and that the world should pay attention. It seems to me a curious relationship to your own mental life that you would say you were a channeler. I mean, it's just, uh, these are the things we think, and it's a way of casting it. Uh, I, I, for instance, it never occurs to me, or it doesn't seem to me a very interesting question to say of the mushroom, is it the same person each time? I mean, what a joke. Uh, it, it's it's uh, some kind of enormous intellectual agency. Uh, it's not a human being. That's the thing. Uh, the channeling, I, I guess my take on channeling is, and it will come out maybe tonight when we talk about the time wave, is that the real skinny is that you have a connection to everybody who ever lived. And there's a way of tuning your internal machinery in such a way that, you know, here comes Marie Antoinette, or here comes Beethoven. But it isn't that Beethoven is a relative of yours, or still less that you were Beethoven. I mean, how likely is that, for crying out loud? Uh, it's simply that they're all there in some cultural superspace and can be reached and called down. I mean, they're an idea. Beethoven is an idea. You know, his grumpiness, the hands behind the back, the da-da-da-da, we know Beethoven. And so he lives in some kind of super space. And uh, uh, 
I think people are just much too literal. Uh, I have this trouble with channeling and with flying saucer people and with the fans of great Atlantis and the people who believe that, you know, lantern-jawed Neanderthal visages ten miles high are gracing the deserts of Mars. All of this, the attraction of this kind of thing completely puzzles me because it's so hokey. And if you want the real thing, you know, it's just five dried grams away. The, the real thing. I mean, so that, you know, you will have done with anecdotes by the denizens of trailer camps in Florida about, uh, or, or all of this other stuff. I mean, it's not that the woo-woo isn't out there. It's that it's, it's so much more woo-woo than the beady-eyed peddlers of it assume that, that they, they just have no idea of what they're playing with. The, the New Age generally, I find, my, uh, somewhat obnoxious because it's a flight from the psychedelic experience. I mean, what you can safely say about the New Age is if a technique doesn't work, they'll proclaim it. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and it is certain, and I, you know, I'm very much in favor of anything which breaks down the conceptions of ordinary medical practice. That's the most important part of the New Age, the the attack on the medical fascism of the of the hierarchy. But a great, you know, people confuse science with reason, and think that if you're anti-science then you're somehow just permitted to go bananas. No, you know, you can be anti-science, but nobody gets released from stuff like the rules of evidence. That's, you have to make sense. You, your, your position, whatever it is, just can't be sky blue. And you, can't, and you should then expect to be treated with the same respect as somebody who's gotten themselves epistemologically together and ontologically oriented. I mean, there are flaky ideas uh, in, in this world. And that, you know, people associate me with the New Age because that was the only place where I was originally tolerated. But I really want my ideas to be tested in the ordinary way, by the ordinary methods. I mean, I offer a mathematical formalism and then surrounding that a bunch of arm-waving verbal exegesis. <laughs> uh, the core thing is the mathematical algorithm to be tested by the ordinary uh, rules of evidence and falsification. And, you know, you can read Karl Popper to figure out what all that's about. Uh, I love science. I just think it's incredibly pretentious and has claimed too much. Its methods are great. Its constipated conservatism is maddening uh, because what it deals with is the most interesting thing there is, nature. Nature is very, very interesting, complex, and permits all kinds of radical speculation about what has happened. It's just that science is also a business, and also a priesthood, and also a men's club, and uh, also uh, the, uh, the plaything of certain classes. 
So all that has to be overcome. My method, I suppose, if method is the word which I would share with you since this question about the New Age came up, is, is uh, not to embrace things which are, are simply outrage bourgeois sensibilities, but to, to explore edges, to test edges yourself. That's the important, yourself. You don't learn about Tantra by reading about Tantra or Ibogaine by reading about Ibogaine. You know, you have to go and do these things. And what you will discover is, you know, you will be fleeced a few times in your youth with this method, you know. You'll get in with some flying saucer cult or some beady-eyed guru and his fanatical devotees. But eventually you'll learn the neighborhood and you'll become street smart and you won't be a mark. That's the goal of a real spiritual method is to not be a mark. And then when you get that together, uh, lo and behold, you would think this would lead to cynicism. Because you say, well, I went and I stayed with Babaji and he was a jackass and then, you know, I joined the Unitarian Uniformitarian Unifunctionalists and that was just a scam and so forth and so on. You would think it would lead to, to cynicism, not if you keep to the edges because eventually you're going to come to psychedelics and then, lo and behold, jackpot, the real thing. Weirdness beyond all possibility to comprehend. You know, you have just won the publisher's clearing sweepstakes of peculiarity. Yeah. I had this happen in the 60s. I got into a place with LSD where I had this LSD and I would give my friends one and I would excuse myself and, and I would take one and then I would excuse myself to the bathroom and take five more. Uh, and then I would end up holding their hand all night long and, in, and I felt weird about it. I felt like, you know, where is all this stuff going? It, it's like it's not working. And when that happened to me, I just said, it's time to dry out for a while. And I did and then everything worked normally later. One of the weirdest things I've encountered is about one in 20 people don't react to DMT. And, you, and it looks genetic to me. I mean, I can't believe you could resist that. If it's coming at them the way it comes at me, nothing could stop it. And yet they will do it and take, you know, enormous inhalations and then say, is this it? Or I don't know, it's kind of strange, but it doesn't seem... And you're just like, oh my God, what is this? <clears throat> so, and one thing to bear in mind in all of this is that uh, we talk a lot about the mental effects of drugs, but these drugs are tiny objects. They are molecules, and they won't work unless they find their way to your synaptic cleft and find waiting for them there what are called drug receptors. Think of them as little outlet holes into which the drug can plug itself. And the, how many of these little uh, receptors you have is, under the, is part of your genetic inheritance. And so some people have a lot and some people have a little and some people have some for some and some have some for others. And you have to learn what works for you 
and and uh, what your what the right tool is yeah yes toad is 5 methoxy dmt it's a it's an exudate of bufo alvarius a large southwestern toad right. so it is dmt is it no 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 it is not dmt it's 5 methoxy dmt and uh, it doesn't cause the same thing that DMT causes. It causes an intense, void-like emotion that is very dissolving, but it is not accompanied by the kind of visual activity that DMT... The visual activity on DMT is astonishing. I mean, it conveys you into a world more complex than the world we're living in, a world of brilliant colors, and faceted surfaces. Uh, How long is the yes, but on ayahuasca, unless it's really horrendously strong, you will never reach the kinds of places you reach on on a DMT flash. Uh, smoking, it. smoking it. No, there is nothing like that. This side of the yawning grave. I hope. <laughs> I mean, I I I I don't know. Is everybody cognizant of what that's like? About how fast the world can be rearranged and how totally replaced it can be by something that you not only hadn't imagined until 30 seconds before that, you couldn't imagine. And now here it is, and you just gaze, you gape in slack-jawed disbelief at what has happened to reality. Oh no, it doesn't induce... it. it Somebody asked, you know, is it dangerous? The danger with DMT is death by astonishment. <laughs> this is an entirely possible outcome of your involvement with it, especially if you're intelligent. I think the more intelligent you are, the more at risk you are for death by astonishment because you just say, you know, good grief. <clears throat> But I see that it's 6.04 and time to knock off. We'll do the time wave tonight. It's a kind of indulgence of me because it's the only original idea I've ever had. Uh, so you're forewarned if you have something better to do. Uh, the hardcore will assemble here at 8. And will there be a technician to boot the disc? Or is there somebody here who's DOS cool? Good, okay. Well, I'm pro-virtual reality just in the sense that I don't think it should be made illegal and stamped out. Uh, I think it should be a legitimate area of research. I certainly don't think most people should plan on decamping to virtual reality land for the rest of much of their lives. That, that wouldn't be a good idea. I see it primarily as a tool for studying language and communication. You never know where a technology is going to lead. When Edison invented the phonograph record, his sincere belief was that its major application would be in the making of wills. Uh, because you would have a, an incontrovertible record of the person's voice speaking, and so it wouldn't be legally contestable in court. Well, I don't know if anybody has ever made a will on a phonograph record, you know. It clearly had an entirely different use and application. So, uh, here we've arrived at Sunday morning. This is basically uh, uh, loose ends, uh, complaints, resolution, 
that whole bit. So uh, uh, let's work our way into it, and then if need be, I'll harangue. So anybody have anything they want to? Yeah. My, I, I like understanding. I think, uh, you know, Whitehead said that understanding is the apperception of pattern as such. That's all, as such. And so you can look at any situation and see different patterns. I mean, like in this room, if we were sociologists, we could analyze where the women are and where the men are. And that would be a pattern, and we could talk about that. Then we could switch our field of interest and talk about where the men and women over 40 are and the men and women under 40, an entirely different pattern. Where the people wearing socks are and the barefoot people. And you realize that in any assemblage of objects, there's an infinite number of patterns of connection and the more of them you see, the more you have this feeling which we call understanding. And it's a, it's a feeling of having assimilated the object to yourself. And, and the great mysterious assemblage, uh, the, 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 the mother of all weird assemblages, is history. You know, the, the peregrinations of our species through time and the, the detritus of that journey. I have a friend in London who's a rare book dealer, and when I'm in London, I'm usually able to contrive a situation where he has to have some errand out. And so then I'm left alone for hours with the books inside these multiple concentric circles of security, and I can open up all the cases and pour through this stuff and it's astonishing i mean the just the 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 cul-de-sacs into which the human mind has wandered you know phlogiston theory uh the chaldean oracles uh, the wunderkammer the hollow earth thing uh, and then all this literature of exploration. I mean, the, the stratigraphy of the human experience is maps and machines and diaries and blueprints. And, uh, and out of all this, if there can be a pattern, then there's a kind of an epiphany, a kind of a sense of order of, aha, it does make sense. It isn't... It isn't uh, a, uh, simply uh, a chaos. Well, that's a, that's a Hindu notion of this same thing, essentially. This platonic super-dimension where all and everything is, uh, is suspended and in place. If you ever want to have a, a very bizarre sub-psychedelic experience when you're in Oxford go to the Pitt Rivers Museum. Everybody goes to the Ashmolean, and of course you should to see the Uccellos and all that. But on the kinkier side, the Pitt Rivers Museum, Pitt Rivers was an early ethnographer in England, and, and into one of those Victorian cast metal and glass ceilinged buildings, he gathered hundreds of millions of objects 
classified by category. So, you know, there are like 50,000 needles from all over the world in drawers, uh, 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 10,000 pairs of pliers from all over the world, from all times and places, and on and on. And you just, and they're in drawers which you can open, and the stuff is stacked up 20 feet high. And you realize that it's a concentration of manas. It's a concrescence. There's one section where there are over 200 drawers labeled magical amulets. And you <laughs> open these drawers and look, magical amulets, southern Iraq, magical amulets, Syria, uh, and on and on. Very bizarre. That to me is, uh, uh, you know, searching for pattern through the detritus of human history. Because I really think that we are caught up in a relationship with something very, very mysterious. I don't like religious vocabularies, but an epiphany is taking place. Something, consciousness is really important, and it, uh, it is using the, the stuff of biology to create some kind of new order in nature. And technology, I'm convinced, has something to do with it. That, you know, machines are, are, are more than they appear to be. And the machine as we have known it is, is to modern technology, is to a possible technology what the chipped flint is to the technology that we possess today. I mean, the concept of a machine, which is downloading of a function into matter, is a concept of immense uh, profundity. Life may be able to extend its career uh, by orders of magnitude through this means. And life is now seen to be, I think, clearly central in the evolution uh, and the career of the universe. Most stars gutter out of existence after 500, 600 million years. That's the average lifetime of a star. We happen to be on a planet around an extraordinarily slow-burning and smooth-burning star that has lasted a long time. But life on this planet has been here for at least two billion years. That's three times the life of the average star. Biology is persistent. Biology is a major player. And biology is not entropic. You know, a star, no matter how smooth burning and self-sustaining, is on a downward energy curve toward heat, death, and extinction. Biology, on the other hand, it pumps itself to higher and higher levels of complexity faster and faster. And it uses the dying stars as stepping stones from one to another. The way, you know, for instance, in the Hawaiian Islands, there's 30 million years of evolution visible, but no, no island out there has been above water more than 6 million years. The islands keep slipping beneath the sea and rising at the, east, at the western edge of the complex, and the life keeps stepping from island to island and perpetuating itself. Uh, uh, 
Hans Moravec has done calculations of the kinds of computational uh, simulations that could be carried out if you had a computer where every atom was a switch and the computer was the size of the solar system. With a computer of that size, you could resurrect every DNA sequence that has ever existed on this planet. And he feels that you would feel a moral obligation so to do, and that the resurrection of the dead would become a social project uh, pursued with government funding. Yeah. Well, I don't think Rupert would agree that biology is entropic. The, the way biology works is uh, by being what's called an open system far from equilibrium. You see, a closed system, like a star or a fire, will always drift toward equilibrium, which is entropic. But the miracle of biology is that by taking in matter, by being an open system and allowing matter to come into the system and then breaking down that matter and extracting energy from it, the, the, the biological organism achieves the miracle of evading equilibrium. It hovers off the main curve of equilibrium. So people who talk about the third... What? Well, the, this is debatable at the highest level. The, there's a problem there because for some weird reason, the identifiable amount of matter in the universe falls so close to the cusp of whether of, of either it is open or it's closed that they can't tell. And why this is probably means there's something wrong with the theory. You know, the Bridgman said, if you, uh, a coincidence is what you have left over when you apply a bad theory. <laughs> but but to, I want to go back for a moment to this question of the open system far from equilibrium. The second law of thermodynamics, which was thought to be inviolate, states that all systems run down into entropy. But in practical terms, given the facts I just stated about how life is three times as persistent than the average star, and that if you view life on this planet as a single unified system of genes, then, then we have to say that there has been a dissipative structure uh, an, a, a far from equilibrium for two billion years, it's been able to maintain itself well off the entropic curve. So I think the second law of thermodynamics looks much more provisional from that light. Well, but see, it's been the third law that has been the downer. I, I mean the second law, because it seems to dictate some, some existential terminus to everything. But uh, see... That's when you view the universe as matter. Here's another thing you have to lay over this. That all comes out of a materialistic view of the universe. If you view the universe as information, the picture becomes much more complicated. We don't really understand what this process is of symbolic signification, of arbitrary assignment 
of significant association. And it's not simply something done in human language. The codons of the DNA that code, the, the three nucleotide codons that code for amino acids that build proteins are arbitrarily assigned at the molecular level. There is no inherent logic that says that guanine, 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 that codon, should code uh, for what it does. Uh, it's, uh, it's entirely arbitrary. And yet out of that leap to arbitrary signification comes life itself. So uh, we shouldn't assume, and it's a natural tendency to fall back into it, that we know what we're talking about. You know, that our intellectual journey through time has taken us to the level where we can actually glimpse what the basic ordering principle is. It may lie in language, not matter, yeah. I keep waiting for you to get to the political implications of all this. Oh, well, I think I passed through it lightly, but let me take another stab <laughs> at it. Um, if, if my picture of things is correct or even close, then the future is going to become uh, considerably more dramatic from the middle 90s on. What we have directly in front of us is sort of the long golden garden party afternoon before the news arrives. Uh, and as the world gets predict more and more peculiar and improbable, and given the kind of things going on out at Jupiter that I talked about, this seems to be arriving on schedule, all this chaotic activity. There's going to be uh, various political stances arise in relation to all of this stuff. Uh, for instance, one faction will say that nothing at all is wrong. Uh, this is, I think, what we see going on now, that there's a kind of collusion by governments and institutions to manage apocalyptic awareness and to say, well, you don't need to worry about the fact that uh, ozone is disappearing from the atmosphere because uh, by 2000 we will have a 7% reduction in output of CFCs and uh, by 2050 we're planning a further 7% uh, and, and you say no no these are crazy people obviously uh, the, uh, you know there's a lot of arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic going on um, and uh, uh, but I think eventually that fluctuations, as the fluctuations become more violent, they will burst through and, uh, poli and political dialogues will start on various fronts. It's hard to say where it will come. For instance, you know, historians of the, of the breakup of the Soviet Union can reasonably argue that what actually the hole in the dike there was the Chernobyl explosion. And that actually set off a series of, of thought, of awareness. People's minds changed. It was like a psychedelic drug, this radiation spreading through Soviet society, because they realized, my God, you know, this was a power plant. 
It was at ground level. It wasn't even a designed explosion. And eight days after it happened, above Auckland, New Zealand, you could sample the, the radiation in the air. So there was a whole crisis of faith in the command economy, in, in uh, everything. And this could happen, some, the, this will happen. The one thing you can be sure of is that the 90s will be shaped by the unexpected. Uh, could be anything. A hot day in August in Mexico City and a million people die when finally all of these toxic levels come together as they potentially could. Or it could be a nuclear failure. Or it could be an assassination. Or uh, it could be the outbreak of a synthetic disease. Or anything. You know, and what this will bring home to people is that the metastable nature of society is beginning to break down, that the shock waves of the future are building up. And what you, you know, in, in engineering an airfoil, uh, engineers have to take account of what is called Q forces, vibration. If you don't design the airfoil correctly, as you approach the speed of sound, the wings of the airplane will be torn off. And so you have to redesign the airplane to move through this barrier. What we have to do is redesign the cultural airfoil so that we slip... What? what you mean that it shouldn't support wrecking the third world? Pardon? No, see, I think that that kind of thing is, is like talking about closing air bases near Sacramento and whether Western civilization can survive the shock of these, this uh, loss of, of jobs. Uh, we're, we're turning into an information society and uh, managers are trying to meet the crisis, but if my faith rested with human managers, I'd be frantic. Uh, the main thing is that the design process is being imposed by nature itself, just in the way that a supersonic aircraft has its design imposed by nature itself. The nature of the medium is dictating uh, the shape of the society that is coming into being. M the main thing is to... Uh, Try to make this through with as little bloodshed and hysteria as possible. And it's a very hard call. I mean, looking at something like Bosnia, you know, the impulse to use F-18s to correct the problem is very great. And yet, you know, in the past, this has not brought joy and thanksgiving uh, where it was used. And also the hubris of thinking that you, you're you know, your job is to separate these people. On the other hand, we can't have people running around trading nuclear weapons in the red light district of Frankfurt, and, uh, which is going on. This is actually going on. Uh, there is a great potential for chaos on the Eurasian landmass right now. How should that be managed? And, you know, a lot of people have nuclear weapons who have no business having nuclear weapons. I think we need to disarm from the top. That's a political agenda. And what, one thing that has to be understood is that what is going on is a process of fragmentation. 
And that is what is supposed to happen at this cultural stage, I think. McLuhan talked about what he called electronic feudalism. Wherever fragmentation is resisted, violence and war and horror will break out. For instance, you know, five years ago there was great anticipation of a federal Europe. That ran against the current of dissolution. And now we see there won't be any federal Europe. I mean, there'll be something on paper in Brussels to keep the diplomats shuttling back and forth. And there'll be no unified psychology. Uh, they're going tribal. The great political force shaping the 90s on one level is ethnicity and turf battles. As these huge ideologies withdraw their imperium, uh, all these local satrapies and warlords begin to exercise their historical claims. Uh, Islam is set to make enormous gains. This has to be accepted in the West. It shouldn't be resisted. The historical momentum is too great. And, you know, it's 700 million people and it represents the only reservoir of tradition of significance left on the planet. Um, in terms of a political agenda, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. The psychedelic thing speaks to freedom. And so you can shine that on a number of issues. Uh, women's rights, abortion, legalization of drugs, uh, but, but, I don't, but not absolute libertarian uh, anarchy, because I don't think we want to get rid of the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, we may want to execute the top echelon and replace it, but the concept of, you know, I, I mean, I've lived in a country without a pure drug act, and it's a nightmare. In India, you can't buy pepper without being afraid that it's been contaminated with lead flakes to make it way more when you buy it in the market. Well, but we've all had, none of us ever had a psychedelic experience in a safe environment. I mean, we, we come out of the nightmare ages. I took psychedelic drugs under the aegis of Richard Milhouse Nixon. I mean, I've stared uh, archetypal danger in the face. I took psychedelics under Indira Gandhi. That was... Uh... Well, see, uh, here's, here's, the, here's the bottom line on this. It's exactly, and I'm, I've said this ad nauseum, but I can't think of another metaphor for it. It's exactly like a birth. And so what you have when you have a birth is it's going to happen. And then the only option you have is, you know, is it going to happen smoothly and with um, uh, skillful pain management and uh, 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 quickly brought to a conclusion or is it just going to be an opera of agony and hysteria and pleading and so forth and so on and uh, the the way to ease the historical crisis is by spreading awareness and you're right the psychedelic is the primary catalyst and then what follows along is this vocabulary of relax for crying out loud and if hearing the word relax is enough, then so be it. If you have to have the time wave 
and, you know, all this mathematics to prove to yourself that you should relax, then that's fine too. But the bottom line is that we're, we're in the roller coaster. The little uh, pipe has now been dropped into your lap. Please do not stand up. Scream if you want. Hang on and, uh, and we'll come through it. But we have to reassure people. And the way you reassure people is by getting them to transcend the systems which are spreading the anxiety. I mean, if you're a fascist, if you're a capitalist, if you have some vested interest in the system, then you're going to be sweating blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to divest yourself of, uh, of a commitment to the system because it's in the process of transformation. Everything, dig what the fact, here's this hard psychedelic truth actually, you want to boil it down to the bottom line. This is the one thing I've learned, maybe, from psychedelics, which is, and this is the message of the time wave, and this is the message of your life and my life, it's that nothing lasts. Heraclitus said it, pantit rea, all flows, nothing lasts. You know, not your enemies, not your fortune, not who you sleep with at night, not the books, not the house in Saint-Tropez, not even the children. Nothing lasts. And to the degree that you avert your gaze from this truth, uh, you build the potential for pain into your life. And everything is this act of of embracing the present moment, the felt presence of experience, and then moving on to the next felt moment of experience. It's, it's literally psychological nomadism is what it is, and that's what we evolved to do, and that's what we're happiest doing. But we've fallen into this object fetishism, sedentary, agriculture-based style, and then... Uh, we're frustrated. So a recovering of this ability to surrender and release. And it's very hard for me and it's very hard for anybody who has an ego. And it's why the psychedelic experience is so challenging. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Ah, the challenges of surrender and release. Well, right now I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to surrender to the challenge of laziness and release you to go do something fun. And since today is a holiday in the states, I'm going to go do something fun myself right now. Well, as soon as I get this file processed and posted on the net, that is. And uh, then tomorrow, I hope I'll be up to the challenge of podcasting the final part of this workshop. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>